Continue our study through the book of Acts. This morning we're in chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. It came about that as he journeyed, he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Lord, what do you want me to do? Rise and enter the city, and it shall be told you what you are to do. And the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. He was three days without sight, neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, behold, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Acquire at the house of Judas for a man named, from Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon thy name. The Lord said to him, go, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight. He arose and he was baptized. He took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the Son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So Saul of Tarsus breathing out threats and murder against the church. Tarsus was uh, a large city and it was one of the centers for Greek culture in the world. Rome had conquered Greece, but Greek, Greek culture still was pervasive. Uh, throughout that part of the world. And, and Saul's parents were Orthodox Jews. 
They didn't want him being trained in the centers for higher learning there in Tarsus with the focus on Greek philosophy and the arts. So they sent him to Jerusalem to be trained in the Hebrew University there under Gamaliel to come under the influence of the culture of Judaism, which is a legalistic culture, focusing on knowing God and obeying the laws of God. And sure enough, Saul of Tarsus became a devout man dedicated to keeping every detail of every law of God, which is why he joined the sect of the Pharisees. The Pharisees Uh, The word means separated ones. And the most devout men became Pharisees. They were going to separate themselves from all those who might allow compromise in their walk with God. There would be no compromise in the life of a Pharisee. He would never touch anything that was unclean. He would never allow himself to be defiled in any way. This sect began when the Jews returned from captivity in Babylon. They knew why they lost their homeland and why they lost their freedom. It was because of disobedience to the laws of God and rebellion against God. And they wanted to make sure nothing like that ever happened again. So they formed this this sect, this group of men. In the beginning, they were called Asadeans, later the Kassadim, and then finally uh, the Pharisees. And in the beginning, this movement was very pure. These men were truly devoted to God, and they loved God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and they wanted to keep the Jewish people pure in their hearts, in their minds, in their walk and relationship with the Lord. But uh, the the sect of the Pharisees sort of deteriorated spiritually and morally over the years until in Jesus' day, most of the Pharisees were only concerned about appearing righteous and pious and godly before men. They really didn't care how much sin was in their life as long as they could keep it hidden and covered so that they would still have the praise and honor of men who think they are godly and hold them up on a, on a pedestal and, and are highly esteemed. Saul was not like that. Saul loved God. Saul was devoted to God. He was passionate. He was zealous. Although he did fall into that evil pride of man where he... he saw himself as better than other people, looked down on people with that holier-than-thou judgmental attitude, looked at everyone other than strict Pharisees with an attitude of contempt. Oh, you don't love God. You don't care what God thinks about anything. So he had that prideful, uh, self-righteous attitude. But God saw the passion. He saw the zeal. He saw the dedication. Here's a man that will give himself completely over to whatever cause he truly believes in. And he's willing to sacrifice anything and everything for that cause. So God looks at Saul and says, that's someone I can use. If I can get him redirected, if I can show him the truth, he'll have the same zeal and the same passion, only it will be for the cause of Christ. And we need to... Remember that because some of the people that we think are the farthest from ever coming to the Lord might be the closest. Sometimes we give up on them. Well, that's the last person that will ever come to the Lord. 
They're not just opposed to Christianity, they're hostile toward it. And they're aggressive in attacking it. Something happened in Saul after the death of Stephen. Saul was there. He didn't want to get his hands dirty. He wasn't one of the ones stoning Stephen. But he was there as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews, approving of what was being done. He said, you guys can put your your coats and your valuables by me and I'll watch over them while you do the job of stoning Stephen. So he heard Stephen's message. And we went over that message in a two-part Sunday morning series in chapter 7. Scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. The word of God is powerful like a sharp two-edged sword piercing the heart. And Saul knew those scriptures and he knew everything Stephen was saying was scripturally solid, doctrinally sound. And so the word of God had to be convicting him. He had to be coming under conviction because of the message of Stephen and because of the love of Christ that was being demonstrated through Stephen when he prayed for the men who were stoning him. Father, do not hold this against them. He was, he was seeing the divine love, the love of Jesus, the, the love that with Jesus loved even his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. There's the love of Jesus. He's hearing the word of God. I think he went from being opposed to Christianity to being enraged by Christianity because he was under conviction and was actually more closer to uh, coming to know Christ and being saved than uh, those who were indifferent. So when you see people that are really hostile toward Christianity, don't think, oh, that's the last person who will ever be saved, and don't give up on praying for them. It might be they're just really under conviction and really close to making a decision for Christ. Keep praying for them. It's like when they say when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, how do you know which dog got hit? Well, probably the one that's barking the loudest is the one that got hit. And Saul of Tarsus is barking the loudest among the religious leaders. He had the nerve to go to the Sanhedrin, the, the chief, high priest and the chief priest, and get letters authorizing him to go wherever he wanted and arrest Christians, confiscate their property and their possessions, have them thrown in prison, and even killed if they wouldn't deny Christ because he saw Christianity as blasphemous. They blaspheme our God. But God, but God sees the zeal and the passion and he knows if he can reveal the truth to him and reveal Christ to him, then he's going to be just as zealous and passionate for the, cross, uh, for the cause of Christ. So Saul is on his way to Damascus to do that very thing, breathing out threats and murder, ravaging the church, and this bright light shines down upon him. And this is no normal light. Nothing that could ever be experienced in the natural realm. It was so brilliant, it was so bright, it blinded him and knocked him down. And then he heard a, a voice. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And his response, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Why did he say, who are you, Lord? He knew this was a supernatural experience. He used the word curious, which means master or supreme authority. This was so supernatural. 
he knows he's, he's having an encounter with God. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, he must have been shocked to hear that. First of all, he had to be shocked to find out Jesus is alive. Oh, my goodness. The story of the empty tomb, <laughs> the message of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, it's true, he's alive. And he also must have been surprised to find out how much Jesus identifies with his followers, those who believe in him. You're persecuting me. What do you mean I'm persecuting you? I'm persecuting Christians. Same thing in the mind of the Lord. He identifies that much with us as believers. That's why if you do anything good or kind to a believer, it's as if you, it's as if you did it to Jesus himself. He receives it as an act of kindness toward him. And there will be a reward. Remember he said when I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry and thirsty, you gave me food and drink. And they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. When were you in prison? When were you sick? When were you hungry? And we, we did all, this, all those things for you. Inasmuch as you did it unto the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. There will be a reward. You can't give a cup of cold water to somebody in the name of Jesus without being rewarded for it. But the same is true if someone does harm to a Christian, it's the same as if you inflicted pain upon Jesus himself. You have pained the Holy One of Israel. And what did he say? Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Anybody uh, that harms a Christian, a believer, in any way, he doesn't allow us to take vengeance in our own hands, but he promises Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard, Saul, to kick against the goads. Now, if you're reading a New American Standard, those words aren't there. If you're reading King James or New King James, you'll see those words. It is hard to kick against the goads. Why? Because... The scholars who translated the New American Standard used a certain set of ancient manuscripts that they believed were the most reliable. The scholars who translated King James and New King James used a set of oldest ancient manuscripts that did include those words and agreed that those were reliable. Now, I personally agree with Barnes and Ironside and William Barclay and G. Campbell Morgan and Matthew Henry and all the great expositors and Greek scholars of the last couple of centuries that all agree that those ancient manuscripts used by the translators of King James and New King James are absolutely reliable. I do believe Jesus said those words to Saul. It's hard to kick against the goads. What does that mean? Well, the goad was a metal shaft with a sharp point on one end, and they would attach the blunt end to the front of the plow, the point facing the oxen. So if the oxen are going to get unruly, a little rebellious, they don't want to carry that yoke, they don't want to pull that plow, and they start kicking, they're going to kick the sharp point of that metal shaft and they are going to hurt themselves. It is going to be very painful. It won't be long. 
They will figure it out. They will stop doing that. And the Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Now, we know if, as believers, if we commit a sin, we're not worried and afraid, oh no, I committed a sin, I'm, I'm not saved anymore, I've lost my salvation, I'm not going to heaven. So why is it that we are so careful to keep our walk with the Lord pure? Why is it we seek the Lord's strength in prayer to overcome fleshly weaknesses and temptation? It's not the fear of hell. We've already been saved from that. It's because we have discovered that when we continue in sin, we are inflicting pain upon ourselves. It's only pleasurable for a moment. It brings long-term pain and suffering and brokenness and eventually death. It's the way of the transgressor is hard. We figured it out. I don't want to be my own worst enemy. There's already enough pain and suffering in the world as it is. Why would I want to bring more unnecessary pain and suffering into my life? I'm done kicking against the goad. I'm going to seek a life of obedience to God, not for his benefit, but for my benefit, so I can have a life that is blessed by God. So it's hard to kick against the goad. So Paul, uh, Saul says, what do you want me to do? Also in King James and New King James, not in American Standard. I do believe he asked that question. And I do believe that that is the difference between a true profession of faith, faith and a false profession of faith. I do believe that that is the difference between a true conversion and a false conversion. In a false Profession of faith where there's no real conversion, they're not asking the question, what shall I do? What do you want me to do? Because they don't care what the Lord wants them to do. They would like to be able to accept Jesus as their Savior so they miss hell and get to go to heaven, but they're not ready to accept Jesus as the Lord of their life. I want to believe in you for salvation, but don't start telling me what to do and how to live my life. And that's why there's no conversion. And it's not true salvation. You have to have Jesus as Savior and Lord to be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. So, so one of the characteristics of someone who is born again, a true conversion, a sincere profession of faith, what do you want me to do, Lord? Not my will any longer. From now on, your will be done. And so Jesus said, go into the city and it will be told you there what you are to do. Now he's blind, so they have to lead him by the hand into the city. It's not exactly the kind of entrance he had envisioned. He had envisioned a very powerful man entering that city, making demands, giving commands, lording it over people, showing everybody how powerful he was, how much authority he had. Instead, meek, humble, and needy. Didn't quite enter the city the way he had envisioned. But that's another characteristic of a true 
conversion. We are changed in that way. We are no longer throwing our weight around, trying to impose our will on others, making demands, giving commands. Remember Jesus said, you know the heathen, how they lord it over one another. Their great men exercise authority over one another. Among you it shall not be so. He who wishes to be greatest among you shall be the servant of all. So one of the characteristics of a true conversion, that meekness and that humility, I'm not expecting others to serve me anymore. My greatest joy and blessing in life is being a lowly, humble servant of God and servant of others. So they lead him by the hand. He's in the house of a man named Judas, not Judas Iscariot, a different Judas. He's there for three days. He can't see, and he's not eating or drinking anything. So he's just in prayer and fasting, seeking the Lord, waiting upon the Lord. During that time, the Lord comes to a disciple, a believer in Christ, there in Damascus by the name of Ananias. And in a vision, he calls Ananias to go to the house of Judas and pray over a man named Saul, who is from Tarsus, that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias is a little troubled by this because Saul's reputation goes before him. They knew all about Saul. And so Ananias' reaction is sort of like, are you sure that's what you want me to do? This guy came to our city to kill people like me. Lord, are you sure you don't have him mixed up with someone else you'd like me to pray for? And you think how silly it is to ask the omniscient one if he knows what he's doing? It sounds silly, but we've all done it. I mean, I know I have. Something's going on in my life that I don't understand and I don't like. Something's going on in the life of a loved one of mine that I don't like and that I don't understand and I find myself wondering how this could possibly be God's will, how this could possibly be God's plan. It's as if I'm wondering if he knows what he's doing. (laughs) Hopefully we're all gonna grow and mature in our faith to where we finally don't do that anymore. No matter what's going on in our lives and the lives of our loves, we know that God is love. We know that he's in control. Uh, we understand he knows what he is doing. So the Lord reassures Ananias, don't worry. I know this guy's reputation. You don't have to be afraid. I know what I'm doing You go and lay hands on him and pray for him because he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, before kings, and before the sons of Israel. What? (laughs) This violent man doing such horrible, evil things is your chosen instrument to be used in the world to accomplish your work? How can that possibly be but you know what Paul wrote later Paul would write that God set him apart from his mother's womb so his whole life before he came to Christ was God preparing him for the work that he had for him to do well how can that be he was doing terrible things to God's people oh yes but think about it when he came to Christ 
From that day on, he saw himself as the chief of sinners. No more evil pride. No more self-righteousness. From that point on, the rest of his days, very humble man, fully, completely relying upon the grace of God and not his own ability to be righteous and godly. Those of us who are believers in Christ today, we were set apart from our mother's womb. And even before we ever came to Christ, God was at work preparing us for that work that he has called us to do for him on this earth. You think, well, how can that be? I mean, some bad things happened to me. I mean, I was abused as a child, okay? Well, how can a loving God allow a child to be abused? Come to Christ. You watch how the love of Jesus will heal your wounded and broken heart and take away all the pain then who better to minister to those who were abused as children? Who will have more compassion for them than you? And who will understand, who will be more understanding of the evil things they're doing, the self-destructive behavior? Who will understand that better than you? And who would they rather talk to? And who would they listen to more than you because they know you've been there. You get it. You understand. You're a more powerful instrument in the hand of God than you could have ever been. Well, what about me? I mean, I did some terrible things. You know, I was a drug addict. I was a drug dealer. Man, I really hurt a lot of people, okay? then when you come to Christ, you will forever see yourself as the chief of sinners. You'll remain humble, fully dependent on the grace of God. You'll never be prideful and self-righteous. Secondly, who better than you to minister to the drug addict and the drug dealer? They can't pull the wool over your eyes. You've used every single con job that they're trying to use on you. You manipulated people just the way they're trying to manipulate you. They can't pull the wool over your eyes. You see right through them. And you see the root cause and the root problem. You better than anybody know how to minister to them. And they will listen to you more than they'll listen to someone else because they know you've been there and you understand. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. And everything you've been through, no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, no matter how hurtful, no matter how evil, God will turn it around and use it for good. It will make it possible for God to use you in a more powerful way than he could use anybody else who hasn't been through what you've been through. So, Ananias says, okay, I guess you're God. You know what you're talking about. He's a chosen instrument of yours. And he goes and he lays hands on him. The scales fall from his eyes and he receives his sight. But God has one more thing for Ananias to do for Saul. I want you to explain to him the things that he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake, for the name of Jesus. Okay, he's, he's going to commit his life. He's going to spend the rest of his days serving me, full-time ministry. But he needs to know ahead of time the things he's going to have to suffer simply because he's my servant. 
what he's going to have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Now, it doesn't list those things here, but we have a pretty good idea what those things are because Paul gives us a list of those things that happened to him in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So, can you imagine if Ananias says, oh, by the way, the Lord wants you to know that uh, as you are serving the Lord, you're going to be beaten with rods three times. And he wants you to know that you're going to be scourged with 39 lashes five times. And he wants you to know that you're going to be stoned and left for dead. And he wants you to know you're going to suffer exposure and cold and hunger and thirst. And those are some of the things you're going to suffer for the name of Jesus. When, when I read this, I have to stop and wonder what I would have done when it came to the point of me making a decision for Christ, if God would have revealed to me those things are going to happen to you, Brad, if you serve me, spend your life serving me, these are the things that you're going to have to suffer for me? I don't know. I might have said, let me think about it and get back to you. I might have said, let me shop around, check out a few other religions first before I decide. But it's the same for all of us. God doesn't say, commit your life to Christ and you'll have smooth sailing the rest of the way. He's very upfront with us. It is appointed unto you on behalf of Christ, not just to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit. We're children of God. And if children, heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, if we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. But I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. So it's the same for all of us. If we're going to share in his love, if we're going to share in his joy, if we're going to share in his peace, if we're going to share in his power, and if we're going to share in his eternal glory, we're going to have to be willing to share in the fellowship of his suffering. So don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing is happening to you. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. That at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. It's really an easy decision for us. It's the decision between a short time of suffering for the name of Christ here on this earth, and then all pain is removed, all suffering ends forever, all tears are wiped away eternally. Or a lifetime of suffering the consequences of sin in this life, and then in eternity of suffering the consequences of sin. after you have suffered a little, and it always seems like a lot. But compared to eternity, it's a very short time. After you've suffered a little, the God of all grace will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's his promise to you today. He's already got the moment, that day marked on the calendar when he himself is going to come and release you from whatever pain and suffering you're going through. God says, I myself will come. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, 
and establish you. And so we have this story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus who became the Apostle Paul, radical transformation. We have the story of when Saul of Tarsus was apprehended by God to belong to God and to accomplish the work of God on this earth. Sort of like a a, a thief that is running and the authorities are chasing him and they finally catch up with him and apprehend him. Uh, We were running from God, but he loved us enough to chase after us. And that day finally came when he revealed Jesus to us. And we surrendered to him to give him power and control over our lives because we'd much rather say the love of Christ controls me than to have to say my anger controls me or to have to say the lust of the flesh controls me or my greed and love of money controls me. And so we surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ that one day we can say, Praise God, I'm not the same person anymore. Now, the love of Christ controls me. And we can say with Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, that I might apprehend that for which I was apprehended by Christ. Therefore, this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.